0: Father God, we just want to come before you again and realize that that you are here amongst us in this space, Lord. That you uh, that you love uh, you love us. You love the neighborhood around us. You love people. Uh, your desire is to be close to us. We throughout, see throughout the pages of Scripture that as humanity has constantly fallen short, and we'll see that again today, as we've constantly failed to achieve the mission that you sent us on, you continually and regularly pursue us. Lord, every other major religion in the world is about us as people climbing our way up to the gods. But you saw that that's impossible, that we can't do that, and so you said instead, let me come to you. And we see that in Jesus. That you met us in in our brokenness while we were still sinners. You died for us. God, may we feel the abundance of that love on each of our lives, no matter what we're going through. That we realize that your love and care is for us, whether we have done well this week or poorly, and that your hope is that we can thrive. God, may we experience you today through your word, through the message that we're going to hear in a minute. May that draw us into a deeper relationship with you and a better understanding of who you are and motivate us to live the kind of life that you want us to. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So every once in a while, when I'm writing a sermon, I have a dilemma, a serious one, right? This week is one of those, because today we kick off a new mini-series. Uh, so like we mentioned, we have been working through the book of Genesis, and we've been, kind of broke it down into little mini-series. So we just racked, ra- wrapped up the story of Jacob, uh, and now today we shift into a, a new uh, main focus for the next, actually until we get to the end of Genesis, uh, we're going to be talking about Joseph, so one of Jacob's sons. And so I realized that this series is, is, a, is a bigger one because, one, it's just longer. It's also going to wrap up our time in Genesis. It also is our baptism series where we, where we, where we constantly poke, point ourselves towards the one baptism that's coming up. And so I wanted to kick off the series with, with something memorable. I wanted, to, I wanted to show some clips, maybe, to get everybody involved, but I couldn't figure out which one. Which one should I show? That was my, my dilemma, right? So the obvious choice for what clip to show when you're starting a series on Joseph, is probably this gem from the from the Broadway musical starring the one and only Donny Osmond, right? So maybe you remember it, but this, right? He first of all looks. Re- re- it is. I was amazed at how trippy this whole thing was. I, I, I don't think I'd ever seen it. I saw it as a high school musical once, uh, which is a totally different thing. And then I watched a few clips, and I'm like, what is happening here? Like, the whole time, he, that clip, by the way, is really long. We cut it down. But, like, the whole time, he's, like, mesmerized that he's wearing a coat. Like, I'm like, that shouldn't be the reaction. Like, cool coat maybe, but, like, how does this go on? Anyway. <laughs> So I thought, I thought about kicking this off with a little Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Uh, but then I was thinking, well, if I'm gonna show a clip about uh, the Technicolor Dreamcoat, there might be one that's a little bit more appropriate, uh, that relates a little bit better. Maybe you remember this one. Uh, some of you already know, but now you really know, right? Yep. Oh, the era of the canned laugh, right? Remember, Cosmo Kramer gets Dakota, and then obviously you can tell what they're trying to affirm there, infer there, Uh, but... uh and so as, as I was thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, we should kick off Joseph in this big, flashy kind of, kind of way. Um, that's usually how we hear the story of Joseph. You're gonna hear, you hear the story of Joseph told uh, uh, to kids a lot. It's a story we tell the kids, and we love to talk about the, the, the dreams and the Technicolor dream coat, uh, which, as we'll see today, doesn't actually say it's even a coat of many colors, just a well-ordained or, or-, or-, ornamented, or- ornamented coat. Uh, But then the thing is that those clips, they they don't really capture what we're going to end up seeing today in this story. Yes, there's going to be a colorful or or, ordained coat. Ordained, wow, ornamented coat. Uh, There's going to be a fancy coat. That's what I'll start saying. It's easier. There's a fancy coat. There is Joseph. There is his brothers. Uh, I'm not sure they danced like that, but maybe. You never know. Um, But what we're going to see instead is there's actually probably a better clip to capture the point of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, That comes uh, from an old movie that stars the, the, the masterful Bill Murray. Maybe you recognize this one. There you go. And so... It's a, Maybe you remember that movie. If you aren't familiar with the movie Groundhog Day, Bill Murray relives that day over and over and over again. Also, hard to find a montage clip that's appropriate for church from that movie. That's why we showed that part. Uh, learned that lesson, too. Um, anyway... Uh, what we're going to end up seeing today, and let's just hold on to that idea of Groundhog's Day being more applicable to what we're going to look at today, uh, and I'll see if I can explain to you why, because we've made it to Genesis 37. Uh, so we, as we've been working through, we made it to Genesis 37. Uh, where we are kind of in the story is that Jacob and Esau have kind of made up at this point, and so now Jacob's going to live out his life with his kids. And what we know from Genesis 35 is that Jacob has 12 sons. All right So it says in Genesis 35, uh, Jacob has 12 sons. The sons of Leah were Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Le- Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Uh, the sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Rachel's servant Billah were Dan and Neph- Neph- Nephtali. and the sons of Leah's servant Ziphah were Gad and Asher. So Joseph has 12 sons. Now eventually those 12 sons are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, remember, if you remember at the end of our, 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 our stories on Jacob, we, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And actually, as we read through Scripture from now on, whenever they talk about Jacob, they kind of use those interchangeably. Sometimes they call him Jacob, sometimes they call him Israel. Uh, and, um, but that's, that's kind of where we are. So these 12 sons are going to eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. But what we find at the end of the book is that we spend most of our time focused on one person, uh, it's, this, it's the longest single narrative in Genesis except for Abraham. So you talk about Abraham for a significant portion of the beginning of, or the middle of Genesis. And now we're going to spend a specific, uh, uh, an extended period of time focused on uh, the oldest son of, of Jacob's favorite wife, and that matters, Rachel, which is Joseph. Uh, we saw at the end of Jacob's story... Uh, that, he, that there was some family dynamics going on there. We saw favoritism amongst his wives. So Jacob was na- married to somebody named Leah and somebody named Rachel. And then they ended up in this little competition to have more kids, even including their handmaidens in there, as you saw uh, in this list here. Uh, and we've got this tension because Ra- Jacob clearly shows favoritism towards his wife Rachel. Uh, and then now what we'll see today is that favoritism continues out into her son and his son Joseph. Jo- yeah, Joseph. But our story picks up in chapter 37, which says this. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives, and and he had brought their father a bad report about them. Let's pause there for just a second and see if we can grab a couple different things out of there. So, our story starts in Canaan, which is where, where the, it's the promised lands, the land that God gave to Abraham. And Joseph is a young man, he's 17 years old, uh, and he's out in the field with some of his brothers, specifically Dan, Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. right? So, the, the sons of the, the handmaidens, not uh, Leah in this particular case. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what happens, but we do know what that, uh, we do know, what we do know is that when jo- Joseph comes home, uh, he, he has bad things to say about his brothers. Now, I, I, I very much think, we're not told what the bad things were, and I do think that's very much on purpose. It just says that he gave a bad report of them. Uh, one of the things, if you had read in the, 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 in the section right before where we got today, we, like I mentioned, we skipped a portion uh, that we'll deal with next week. But in the portion that we skipped, you'll see that the biblical author here has no problem giving us the specifics of where these brothers mess up. So in the stories that come uh, from Genesis 35 to Genesis 37, they're, it's a mess. Those particular um, brothers are doing a whole bunch of things that are not, uh, are not helpful or constructive in any kind of way and also very destructive. Uh, and in those stories, we're given pretty clear details about what those things are. But in this line... We get something different. It just says, Joseph's out in the field with his brothers, and when he comes home, he tattles on them, right? They did something that's probably annoying, but he's got to go, Dad, they did this, right? It- it's setting up the dynamic that we have between Joseph and his brothers, uh, that, that he's-, he's the annoying little brother, right? That, that even though, we, you know, when we're out in the fields, it's the brothers doing their thing, but we can't, we got to watch out for Joseph because he's going to tattle on us, Right? That he's the annoying little brother that was always going to run back to daddy, uh, whereas the rest of us, what's said while watching the sheep, stays while watching the sheep, right? Um, which was that if you had brothers growing up, you know that dynamic. I, I did. Um, we actually uh, would reg- we made rules that if, you, if, if we, we weren't supposed to fight, right? But if we did and somebody got hurt, you weren't allowed to cry. If you couldn't stop crying, we just buried you in pillows until you were done, right? <laughs> so, uh, and that was the agreement. Uh, except for my younger brother, Matt, sometimes would break that agreement. But then, you know, then you make him pay later. So that's all that happens, right? So, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So right out of the gate, we see the tension in our story. If you went with us through Genesis, you might be starting to understand the groundhog clip already. But let's keep going through the story. Genesis 37, 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made him a richly ornamented robe I made, made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So, what we see here is that Joseph's already out on a bad foot with his brothers. Right? He's, the little, he's the annoying little brother, he's the tattletale. And now he's got a special kind of relationship with slash Israel. Right? It says straight out that Jacob loved him the most. We've seen a problem with favoritism from Jacob already, so we can assume this is even, well, we know this is even more on display because not only can they just perceive that their father loves Joseph more, he gives them a visual reminder that they have to constantly look at. So it says that he gave him a special ornamented, or yeah, ornamented. I got it right that time and thought I didn't. He got, a, they got him a fancy coat. Now, it, we've maybe historically have talked about it as a coat of many colors, perhaps. Uh, it, either way, the point that they're making is that it was flashy it was, it was easy to see. It was very expensive. It was different than what everybody else would wear. And so what we have here then is we have this, these feelings of animosity that start to be created. Joseph is the annoying little brother who dad loves best and is even giving special treatment to now, a coat might not feel like that much of a special treatment, but to get a coat that's ornamented or does have multiple colors in it was incredibly expensive. Dye was hard to come around. It would have been, uh, it would have been a major, major purpose. It would have been similar to, you. let's say you work with your brothers, and, uh, and, you, and one of your parents and your dad loves your brother more than you, and so he buys him a BMW. You guys work at the job site. Every day your brother pulls up in that BMW, you're like, son of a. Gone, there it is again, right? Right in your face, clearly a very expensive gift. You didn't get a BMW, he did, and he's going to drive it into your workspace every day just to rub it in. And you can imagine in the midst of that space the animosity that's created amongst the brothers there. Not, well, the brothers towards Joseph instead. It's not not hard to see why they have a beef with him, right? But that's not all, because it keeps going on in verse 5. It says Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, "Listen, listen to this dream I've had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it." His brothers said to him, "Do you intend to rule over us? Will you actually rule us?" And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he'd said. This is one of those things where you're like, come on, Joey. Like, really? Like, you're not picking up what everybody else is putting down here, right? You already can tell that your brothers are annoyed by you, by the whole tattletale thing. Then there's the fact that they won't talk to you or they can't say a kind word to you. And then you're going to go ahead and drop this dream on them, right? He's just, he's not catching, he's not catching uh, what's going on here. Um, He's like, essentially, he walks up into this interaction, like, I know you guys all hate me. Uh, But have you seen my coat? It's pretty colorful and awesome. Um, By the way, I had a dream and all of you eventually are going to serve me. Cool, right? Again, that just burning rage, we can kind of see where that's starting to come from. Because the story keeps going. Joseph actually has another dream. This time, it's about the sun and the moon, um, the sun and the moon and the stars all uh, bowing down to him too, essentially saying, both our father and your mothers will do it as well. Um, Which even, even Jacob has a little bit of a hard time with that one, though it says he ponders it for a bit. And so this whole situation keeps getting worse and worse until it comes to a head in verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel says to Joseph, Israel Jacob says to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well is with your brothers in the flocks and bring, uh, bring word back to me. They sent him off from the valley of Hebron. Now a few things to, to point out here. First, we have the ten brothers, not Benjamin. He would have been too young probably to be in that particular space. Also, uh, we know from later in the story that ben, if Joseph's the favorite, Benjamin's the second favorite as the second child of Rachel. Um, but the t- other ten brothers are out watching sheep and Israel, Jacob, wants to send Joseph out to find them. That's, that was obviously in the, in the passage we read. But that means a few things. The first thing that it means is pretty straightforward, but if you don't stop to think about it, you might miss it. The fact is the ten brothers are out herding sheep and Joseph's not. Right? We know from a few verses earlier he's clearly old enough to be out there watching sheep. He had already done it. He's got some, of the, some experience in that space. And yet the ten brothers are out and he's not. He's not which has got to be extremely annoying if you're one of the other ten, right? Especially because it's probably summer, which makes it, to be, makes it be a, re, a really uh, difficult time to herd sheep in the first place. Why we assume it's summer is because the brothers are a long way from home. Actually, if we can throw up this map. We know that Joseph starts in the Valley of Hebron, which is down there in the south And what we'll see in a few minutes, he gets sent to Shechem, but they aren't even in Shechem. They're up in Dothan, up at the top there. The fact that they are so far away from where they started means they had to drive their sheep a long way to find food, which means it's not the time where it's just all over the place. So if you're one of the ten brothers who has to walk all that way, by the way, through the heat of the summer, where Joe is back at home, totally relaxed until his dad sends him up, and he's going to show up in his dumb coat, you can start to realize where that tension's coming from. I, I know we've hit that hard, but so does the Bible in that way. So Joseph goes to find his brothers. They aren't at Shechem, they're at Shechem, they're at a nearby place called Dotham. And while he's coming to see them, he's uh, <clears throat> coming wearing his coat too, we know that. Uh, they decide it's time to get rid of him, that we can't handle this guy anymore. He's walking up in this ornamented coat. He's annoying, he doesn't have to do anything. Father loves him best. We can't. We can't figure out how to get along with him. Like, this is just not working. And so they actually agree to kill him. They say they're going to... But Reuben feels like the, the oldest of the, of the brothers feels like that's a little too harsh. And so instead, they do this. Verse 23. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Again, probably the summer. And they sat down to eat their meal. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, "What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood." His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, the brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. There's a lot of really interesting things in that passage I want to point out quickly. So, first, Reuben convinces them not to kill him and throw him into a cistern. So, if you kind of just get a visual of it, it doesn't actually change the picture or the picture of the passage that much. But if you're wondering how the cisterns work, uh, this is a Israeli cistern. Um, it is, it, there's a little rope ladder that goes down into it and in a small hole. Uh, and when you, if you were to go into something like that, it would look like this underneath. So cisterns were big. Um, they'd have pools of water in there, but they were also big enough like, to carry many jugs and things like that. And so they tend to be very, very large. Um, and then there would be a section of, with water and a section for staging. Uh, this particular one is dry. So it was the one in um, the story of Joseph. But that's kind of what you're picturing if you're talking about a cistern. So the Bible actually tells us that Reuben's plan was to circle back and eventually let Joseph out. But while they're sitting down to eat lunch, they see a band of Ishmaelites, which is interesting. I want you to hold on to that thought. Don't forget that we're talking about Ishmaelites. We'll talk about that again in a minute. But they decide, well, I guess he is our brother. He's our flesh and blood. We probably shouldn't kill him. Plus, we don't gain anything from killing him. We do if we sell him, though, right? We actually will have some money. So that's what they decide to do. They don't kill him, they sell him. And so he heads off with the Ishmaelites. They go home, they actually end up then staging uh, his death. So they have his his ornamented coat. Uh, They kill uh, an animal, cover the coat with blood. It shreds a little bit. They go home to Jacob uh, and tell him, hey, an animal ate Joseph. And this is the interaction there in verse 34. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning I will go down into the grave to my son. And so his father wept for him. So here we are again. We played the clip at the beginning and said the the clip from Groundhog's Day better captures what we're looking at. And maybe you're starting to be able to see that. We've worked through the book of Genesis starting all the way back at the very beginning. And time and time and time again, it feels like we've seen this particular story. Last series, we focused on Jacob and Esau. We saw Jacob hurt Esau and Esau uh, swear to kill Jacob. Clearly, the tension uh, between the two was great. We see broken, hurting families, We actually see that even in the the passage just listing out Jacob's sons. We see that you had had tension between Leah and Rachel. You have tension between their their servants as well. There's this brokenness in all of these family relationships that's now being carried forward. We had hoped the cycle was broken at the end of Jacob's story, but here we are again. We saw it with Jacob and Esau, but before that... We saw it with Isaac and Ishmael. Quick side note, by the way. Another repetition in this story. His brothers, it says, it actually goes back and forth. It says they're going to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. But then it says they, the Midianites are actually the ones who pay. There's, it's because you can call them either one of those things. They're the same group of people. But I think the Bible picks the Ishmaelites on purpose. I thought this was kind of cool. If you remember... There's been a time before right now in which somebody was rejected by their family and sent south into the desert. Do you remember that story? It happened twice. Both times happened to Hagar, right? That her family rejected her, sent her out into the south desert. Do you remember what happened when Hagar was in the desert in the south? Both times she comes to a spring and in that spring, God meets her there. It's Leoi Berleoy- Royoi. It's hard to pronounce, but it, but it essentially means the one who sees. Each time a family member has been sent away, thinking they're dead, to the South Desert, God meets them and sees them there. Interesting, right? Who, do, who did the brothers sell Joseph to? To the Ishmaelites, right? Ishmael being the son of Hagar, who was met in the South Desert to find new life. Joseph thinks he's dead, sold into slavery, headed south into the desert, given to the Ishmaelites. I don't know. Interesting, right? Because if you know the story of Joseph, what's going to happen is he will be seen in Egypt. I don't think that's an accident. But back on track. We had a brokenness between Jacob and Esau. We had a brokenness between Ishmael and Isaac. Well, maybe not with the two brothers, but definitely between their mothers, right? With Sarah and Hagar. But that's not all. We could go back to the relationship between Lot and Abraham where we found that they were walking together and at some point they got too big and had to separate. Or if you really wanted to go back, you could look at the story of Ham, Shem, and Jepheth, Noah's sons, and Ham being rejected. Or you could go back even one step further the story of Cain and Abel. Actually, the word that that it's used in Hebrew when they're talking about the brothers wanting to kill Jacob is the exact same word that Cain uses when he kills Abel. This whole story is pointing us back to all the stories that we've seen. Over and over and over and over and over again, we're seeing the same cycle repeated, and each time it feels like it's getting a little bit worse. What day is it? It's February 2. It's Groundhog's Day all over again. We have repetitive family brokenness. We have favoritism, murder plots, lies, deception, division. It's all busted. There was so much hope when Jacob and Esau met and Esau meets him with this joyous um, forgiveness. But we're right back to where we started. Do you remember what the plan was for Israel? What God told Abraham it was going to be all about. It's been a while, but, it, but we saw it here in Genesis 12. This is, the, this is the mandate of the nation of Israel, if you will. It's what God says is going to happen. This is why, he, why he's blessing Abraham, what, they want, what he wants for it to look like. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and this part is really important, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then finally, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. The original purpose of Israel was to walk with God in a special way so that they could teach the world how to walk with God in a special way. The purpose of Israel was to bring people together, for them to be a blessing to those who are around them, to show them what it looks like to walk with God. And what we've seen through the story... Has not been that, has it? Throughout the story of Jacob, we have deception. We have, we, have, we have hurt, pain, brokenness. Through the story of Isaac, we have it. Through the story of Abraham, we have it. Through the story even before Abraham, we have this cycle of brokenness in which God's people are not blessing the people around them. They're actually dividing them Instead. Three generations, each filled with more brokenness than the first one. Each time we end one of these stories, we keep hoping for something different, but we keep getting more of the same. Now, like I had mentioned, this week kicks off the beginning of our story of Joseph, but it also kicks off the beginning of our focus on baptism. In five weeks, we're going to be going to the shores of Lake Michigan at Camp Geneva, for our one baptism celebration. If you're not familiar with that, you can see the promo video we played a couple weeks ago on on our YouTube channel or Facebook. Um, It's an amazing celebration um, in which we we just celebrate God moving in people's lives in that way. And I actually think that if, if this is the story that's gonna kick off this series, I think it's perfect for that. Because I actually think that many of us can relate to that feeling that we get reading through Genesis. Many many of us have lived into lived into this story, the feeling that as much as everything changes, it stays the same. The brokenness we experience just keeps cycling. We hope it will get better, only to be disappointed when we find ourselves right back where we started. It's true through the first few pages of the Bible. Over and over and over again, we see brokenness producing more brokenness, which unfortunately is true for so many of us as well, which is why this is the perfect way to kick off a series on baptism. Because if you're not familiar with what baptism is, baptism is a symbol. It's a really important one uh, in the Bible, but it's not magic. That's important to remember, but it is a physical reminder of, of a significant moment in our lives. And here at Harbor Life, we we practice baptism in two different ways. We baptize infants to remind ourselves that God loves our children and to remind ourselves that we need to constantly be teaching them that, both as parents and as a community. That moment, that moment in which the parents stand up front and we baptize the infant is a moment that that I know as a parent parent myself, think back to and remember, these kids are God's kids and I need to teach them about his love. It's an important moment in that space. Whether it was baptism or dedication, that commitment matters. We need it because when our kids are acting more like little devils than little angels, maybe you've lived that, maybe not, I don't know. Uh, We need to remember that they are loved by God and we've committed to showing them that love. But we also baptize adults to remind ourselves that the cycle can break. That there is a better way. When we're out at Lake Michigan, if if you're an adult being baptized, we immerse you underneath the water, which if you were to stay there, would mean you would die, right? So the baptism immersion in that space is a symbol of death. When you go under the water, you stay there, you'll die. It feels morbid, but it's the idea that we, we die to ourselves first to come back out again into a new kind of life. That we may have these cycles of destruction in our lives, cycles of hurts, the things that we seem like we keep coming back to time and time again, but if we're willing to die to some of that, we can find new life in Christ. Which, again, the imagery might feel morbid, but I'd ask the question, is there any other way to break this cycle? My guess is a lot of you have tried to break the cycle. But Scripture says it this way in Colossians 3, verse 4. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all, and is in all. It's a very clear theme that pulls through to the New Testament. Put to death, therefore, these other things that are in your earthly nature. Because I would argue there is no other way. How many times have you half heartedly started something and then that thing becomes a lifelong habit? Probably not, right? If you start something half-heartedly, not, putting, not actually committing to it, just kind of beginning it but not focusing on it, I'm sure it can happen that it becomes a habit, but most often those things end up falling away and we end up right where, back where we started. If you don't believe me, how many of you keep your New Year's resolution every year? All the way through. You're not alone. Don't worry. There's actually data on it. A 2016 study, which I know is a little dated, but still the point will come across, says only 9% of people who reported making a New Year's resolution felt like they kept it all year long. Again, when we make half-hearted commitments to things, we don't keep them. Interestingly though, that's actually better than people who who had goals but didn't actually make it a resolution. So you actually gain 5% by just making the resolution, 5%, so it's only 4% of people who just casually have a goal, keep their goal, self-reported. Whereas if you make a resolution, you move up to nine. But either way, the point still stands. That when we haphazardly or half-heartedly try to change something in our lives, what we find is we don't end up breaking the cycle. What we see in the story of Joseph is that same thing, that, that yes, we saw some th- positive movement in the story of Jacob, but without a commitment to it, it fell right back to where it was before. We see it in our lives as well, that maybe we have some positive instances, but until, if we don't, unless we take it super seriously, we end up falling right back where we were before. What we see throughout Scripture is this idea that if we actually want to change something in our lives that we know is destructive the imagery that's used is you got to kill it, is got to go all in and actually allow God to work on it. you got to wrestle with it and figure out what part of this is good, what part isn't. It's the hard work of our faith lives. that like Jesus tells us there is, a, there is a best way to live, but it's going to require a dying to yourself first. If you found yourself st- stuck in one of these cycles... I want to encourage you to wrestle with that. Are you happy in that space? Do you feel like you're flourishing in the way that God desires you to? Do you feel like those parts of your life are are, are life-giving or consistently life-taking? Have you found yourself in a place of hopelessness where you think there's no way I can get out? I'm just stuck here. I've tried to get out time and time again and I can do it for a minute, but then it all goes right back to where it was. If you're in that space, I wanna su- to suggest to you that the scripture says over and over again that there is hope. There is a way out of that particular space. It comes through dying to yourself and allowing Christ to move in you and doing that over and over and over again. If you are someone here who has been baptized already, I would encourage you in those moments in which you are really needing the extra effort to think back to your baptism To that moment in which you said, I will die to myself and I will be alive in Christ. And that will be a process that I go through for the rest of my life. To realize that there's death in that space, but you always are coming back out in new life. If you've been baptized, remember that moment. That's what gives baptism its power. It's a moment in which we commit to God and he meets us in a special way. I don't know the metaphysics of how that works, but that's what the Bible tells us. And in the midst of that space, we have the motivation and the energy to start into something new. If you've already been baptized, I'd encourage you to consistently think back to that space. If you haven't, I would encourage you to consider it. Like I mentioned, five weeks from now, we'll be at Lake Michigan. It's, honestly, it's, I've said it before and I mean it. It's my favorite Sunday of the year. It is an amazing celebration in which all of our campuses come together. Thousand people, more than a thousand people, a couple thousand people there to celebrate these commitments that people are making. It's a, it's a, it's a moment in which, in which it's easy to think back and remember the kind of commitment you're making. And so I want to encourage you if you're wrestling with whether to, baptism is for you or not. We realize that baptism is not a declaration that you have it all together. It's not. It's not what it's about. We don't. I don't. Nobody does. It's not what you're saying in baptism. What you're saying with baptism is I'm committed that in those moments in which I'm trying to break a cycle, that I'll remember that I can die to myself but become back alive in Christ. It's a moment that's saying I'm going to make a commitment at this point to follow Jesus, and I trust that his way is best, even though some days I'll do well with it and some days I won't. It's moving into a space that, in which you say, I'm going to mark that commitment that I've made with a physical reminder, which we call baptism, so that when I find myself struggling again later or find myself falling back into the cycles I haven't been able to break, I have a moment I can remember and a moment to restart again. Again, if you've already done that, maybe spend some time this week or these, for these five weeks reflecting on that, what that means to you. If it's something you'd like to do, I would encourage you either to reach out to me or Lisa directly, or you can sign up online. We'd love to have a conversation with you about what that looks like. We have eight people probably now that are going to already be baptized, and I'd love to see us bring 20. The fact of the matter is, left to our own devices, we'll probably fall into the same cycle that Israel does throughout three generations that so many people tend to, that we only tend to, that as much as things change, they stay the same. But one of the key promises of Scripture is that if you're willing to do it differently, there is, one, a better way that exists, and, two, you can find it in Christ. Will you pray with me? Father God, we realize that, that so many of us so often fall into the same cycles of destruction, of hurt, of brokenness, in which we're doing the same things over and over and over again, even though we hate it. God, we pray for vision uh, uh, for each of us in our lives where those areas might be. God, we also pray that in those spaces where it feels hopeless, like I can't break this thing that I'm stuck in, we realize that your spirit meets us there, motivates us, encourages us, gives us the strength to put to death the thing that's holding us back, Not so that there's a void, but so that there's a space for something new to grow. We put off the old and put on the new. And in that space, Christ is in all and through all. God, give us a vision for what the kind of life you desire for us looks like. and Give us the courage to step into that space, whether that's the stepping into the waters of baptism or stepping into the remembrance of the time we stepped into the waters of baptism that you meet us there, and that each day we have a chance for something new. Amen.